0: And as you're seated, please open the Word of God to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis 41, that means 10 chapters left of Genesis as we've been studying together through this book. Um, such a blessing to me, such a, so much to learn, so much to grow in, such a challenge. <clears throat> Genesis 41, we'll read the entire chapter and then um, we'll start the teaching and. If the game starts, that's okay. We'll just keep going. (laughs) What game? Amen. (laughs) What game? Genesis 41, verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile, and the ugly thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream, and as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. "'I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it.' And Joseph answered Pharaoh, "'It is not in me.' God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, "'Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows.' But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. And then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered thin and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven, good, seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is, as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will bring it about shortly. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and over all my people. They shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath Paneah. And he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenoth, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my Affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Father, thank You for Your Word. Lord, thank You that we are able to read in public like this Your Word. God, I pray that Your Spirit would work in our hearts and minds through the reading and explaining and applying of Your Word. God, what we just read is inspired of You. What we're about to hear, God, is a feeble attempt to explain and apply. But, God, we pray that you would use the feeble words of man, God, to bring glory to you and change in your people that would be glorifying, that would be edifying and encouraging. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been studying this book of Genesis. We've been studying Joseph's life. And as we've been studying Joseph's life together, we have been learning a lot about God, a lot about God. We've been watching Joseph respond to God and respond to life by faith in God. So we've been learning a lot about how to respond rightly, but we've really been getting the blessing of a behind-the-scenes look at God controlling life and everything that happens in life, bringing really hard times, bringing good times, so that God will bring about his plan, his purpose, for his glory and for the good of his people. We've been seeing God doing all of these things, And that he's he's making all of this come about. And we said that the entire purpose for the whole account of Joseph from here through the rest of Genesis was, if you'll recall, the swag of the flag. (laughs) Some of you intentionally got rid of that immediately when I said that before. But some of you can remember that that means the sovereignty, the wisdom, and the goodness of the faithful, living, almighty God. That's what this life of Joseph is really all about. And that's true in the vast, big picture of what God is doing to bring about the Messiah Jesus far down the road from what He's doing here in Joseph's life over 1,800 years later. That's true in that really big picture. It's true in the little bit smaller but still really big picture of how God's going to save His people Israel in Egypt. And then 400 years later, He's going to bring them out as He's caused them to grow and expand and prosper there. But it's also true in that extremely small, myopic little picture of Joseph and his life. The everyday, the everything, events and circumstances in the life of just one person who believes in the Lord. God's moving in nations. He's moving entire people groups around the world. He's controlling famines and bumper crops. He's watching over His people that are right now scattered across two different continents He's sovereign over the vast movements of the world and the universe, and yet he's also sovereign and wise and good over the events and happenings of the life of this one 30-year-old forgotten man in prison. The cupbearer forgot him, but God hasn't. God is working, even through the really difficult, and what we think of as all of the unfair things that have happened to Joseph, God's been working, He's been bringing them about, and He is faithful and living and almighty, and He's working in Joseph, and He's working in our lives as well. So we get to see all this behind-the-scenes stuff that God's doing, the whole picture, the big picture of where Joseph's life is heading and what God's doing in all of this, and, and because we're learning this about God, we're learning that He never changes, the God who was with Joseph through all that he endured, the God who was working out his perfect plan in Joseph's life through all the devastating circumstances that came to him is the same God who's watching over us, who's with us, and who's working in all of our devastating circumstances and the hard circumstances and the good circumstances and the good things that happen as well as the bad. So the key is to trust this God to be the same God, the same sovereign, wise, good faithful, living, almighty God. Let's study this chapter as things seem to get a little bit better for Joseph. Usually this chapter is where people begin to teach, ah, God is finally exalting Joseph. He's finally rewarding Joseph for all of his faithfulness. And if you will just endure, then God will reward you as well. That's the message that I've heard often from Genesis chapter 41. But how often has that worked out? Has that worked out in your life? That every time that you believe that you are being faithful to the Lord, He's just raking in the money, He's making you king over a nation, you get to be in charge, and things are just great. Isn't that the way it works? Some of the most faithful people in the history of God's people have struggled the most through their entire life. And some of the most vile, God-hating, god rejecting people on earth have the finest things in this world. So that's not the message. As Joseph ascends here into a position of authority and responsibility, it's not going to be just hold on because God's going to give you a life of luxury and ease. But let's study together to find out how God does work His will out and how Joseph responds to God working out His will in his life because life changes drastically again here in three parts. And the first part that we're going to look at in verses 1 to 13 is we get to see God's will around Joseph. God's will going on and happening all around Joseph. God's the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. He gives Pharaoh two dreams. Now, we read them, so you don't need me to retell them to you. We read them a couple of times because it tells us, and then Pharaoh tells them again, and then Joseph explains them. So we got it, right? We got the dreams. But a little bit of background might help that cows in Egypt, to escape the heat and the flies, would partially submerge themselves in the water of the Nile. This was a common occurrence. It seems strange to us, but this is what would happen. They would come up out of the water to eat. And so Pharaoh sees the seven cows in the water, and that's normal. The seven cows come up, and they look great. They look like every Egyptian cow should look to Pharaoh, right? Just the way they're supposed to, attractive and plump, everything a cow should be. But then seven other cows came up who were ugly and thin. And what's worse, they do what cows never do. They eat meat. (laughs) They gobble up the other cows, right? That's pretty disturbing. So it woke him up, (laughs) right? He wakes up, but then he goes back to sleep, and he had another disturbing dream. This one started out, he's looking at a field of grain, probably wheat or barley. If you have King James, it says corn. It wasn't corn. Corn was a North American crop. So just know that it was probably wheat or barley. But he he zeroes in on a stock, and he sees seven plump good ears. Um, Egypt was known as the granary of the ancient world. Egyptian grain. This is This is what it's supposed to be like, right? But then he sees the seven other ears that were blighted, they were shriveled up, they were ruined by the east wind. It's a fast-moving hot and dry wind, kind of think of like a convection oven. You get the hot and then you get the wind, it just blows around in there. In fact, today there is a wind called the simoom that blows across the Sahara, it, grows, it blows across northern Africa, even up into the Middle East when this wind blows, it can reach temperatures of 130 degrees Fahrenheit. And then the, 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 uh, the humidity in the air can drop to less than 10%. So this is a wind. Simum actually means poison wind. That's the kind of wind that happens here that, that Pharaoh calls the east wind. But again, as the fantastic occurrence of dreams happens, the blighted ears suddenly have mouths and they eat up the other ears of grain. And somebody who is really good at computer animation, could probably have a lot of fun <laughs> picturing what that might look like and, and rendering that for us. But after that, again, Pharaoh wakes up, and it was uh, he may not have slept again because it just jumps, verse 8, right to the morning and says he was troubled. Now, if you were here um, before and last week in, in chapter 40, you remember the two officials there, the cup the cupbearer and the baker, were troubled. This is a different word for troubled. Remember, those two men were troubled by uh, being downcast. They were dejected and pitiful looking, right? This word for troubled means Pharaoh is agitated. Um, the, the idea of being pushed, impelled and to do something. The, the primitive root is really the idea of tapping. So you can imagine him sitting on his throne. He's like, <sighs> I, I don't know what to do. I'm, agi- I'm troubled. That, that's the word for that. He's restless. He's agitated. And you're the Pharaoh. You're the king. You're not supposed to be troubled like this. He's the powerful king of the most powerful nation in the world right now. Not only that, he's supposed to be the incarnate Ra, the, the Egyptian god of the sun. He's supposed to be God on earth. And he's sitting there going, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I don't know, What should I be doing? His divine power, supposedly, and his political power this morning is worthless. So he calls for the experts, the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And he tells them his two dreams and he begins to listen to them make excuses. <laughs> was that all there was, Pharaoh? You know, did something else happen? What, uh, you know, we're not getting this. Could, could you tell us again? Uh, was there more? What else happened? All the wisdom available at Pharaoh's fingertips, all of the wisdom it is at his command, and this morning, again, it's worthless. How is it that they were not able to give the interpretation? Well, maybe it's because it wasn't one of those self-fulfilling prophecies Or or dreams that we've talked about. Those who study dream interpretation in ancient Egypt have discovered that there are recurring themes that happen in the dreams. And so when, when this thing happens, well, it means this. And when that thing happens, it means that. For example, dreaming of a deep well in ancient Egypt meant prison. Prisons coming to you. Seeing a large cat in your dream meant a large bumper crop was sure to follow. And so that's what they would tell the dreamer that these things meant. You know, if you had a dream, I could pick up on certain symbolism and just, you know, that's what it means. We just, we just go on with that. But more often, they were self-fulfilling dreams. For instance, if someone saw himself eating crocodile meat in his dream, because who doesn't dream of that, right? <laughs> if, you, if you saw yourself eating crocodile meat, that was a good omen that you were going to become a village official. Well, that's a self-fulfilling because you said, "Well, that's what I dreamed. That's what he told me it meant. Well, that's what I'm going to start. I'm going to start working towards becoming a village official, right? And then I'm going to tell everybody else around me. The wise men told me that this dream meant I'm going to be a village official. Well, if they told you that, we believe it. Let's, you know, and so suddenly it's not the work of the gods. It was just, hey, it was this power of suggestion, right? And and you believed it, and everybody else believed it, and so you became a village official. That's how these dream interpreters worked in Egypt." They would appeal to the mythical god Thoth for understanding. He was their god of wisdom and judgment and science and magic and dream interpretation. And he was supposed to relay the messages from the gods to the humans. But here, at his biggest moment, his moment to shine, he comes up non-existent, silent, worthless, The point of all this is that there really isn't anything special, magical, or divine about these magicians or wise men. They say they can interpret dreams, and they can uh, give you the the correct interpretations, but it was usually vague or self-fulfilling. But there's no magic, there's no wisdom, there's no power in Egypt among men by which Pharaoh can understand his dream. When it came to this genuine, revelatory dream from God, Everybody is helpless and powerless. And that's a helpful application for us to to be reminded and to learn about in this account. In, In your notes here, the application here is that all worldly power and wisdom is ultimately useless. It's all ultimately useless. All of it that's a direct challenge to God's power and wisdom and sovereignty and goodness, it's all worthless. You've got... 1 Corinthians 1 verses 20 to 31 in your notes, I encourage you to to study those, to read those verses because there it teaches us that God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God exposes the wisdom and the power of this world as insufficient. It it doesn't work. It's, it's, It's not reliable. And he's done it from the beginning. He did it in Jesus, in bringing the gospel to us, who could never earn it ourselves. And he continues to do it every day in the life of his people. Don't go to the wisdom of the world. Don't fall into the trap of the power of the world and all of the trappings that are there and all that they claim to have. Be careful because the wisdom and the power of the world can seem so appealing, so convincing to us. You know, that seems to make sense. That seems to fit with what I've seen. That fits with my experience, with what I know from the world. Instead of going back to what God has said. The world begins with a a different origin of life. They continue with a different reason for life. They have different explanations for the end of life. And everything in between, the beginning and the end. But all the answers the world gives are based on that view of the world. It's all an accident. It's all fate. We don't know what's happening. You just have to deal with it. All the answers that the world gives, as, as, as much as they seem to make sense so often, are ultimately worthless, empty, meaningless. Just as the magicians and wise men came up short here, the wisdom and power of the world will always come up short. So enter Mr. Bearer, Mr. Cup Bearer. He says, I remember my offense when the baker and I had dreams. The young Hebrew interpreted our dreams, and exactly what he said happened. So suddenly he remembers Joseph, but he doesn't remember his name, does he? The cupbearer doesn't remember Joseph's name. He doesn't remember him as a a slave or, or an innocent prisoner or one who attended to him so carefully, so faithfully. And he completely forgets what Joseph told him. Dream interpretations belong to God. He forgets all of that. But Joseph stood out to him. He remembered him. Now, there's a lesson here also that that stands out to us, and I don't believe it was part of the original lesson, but it does just kind of jump off the page. It jumped off the page to me this week, and Lord willing, it will be encouraging, edifying to you, and that's the next part of the application here, that people should remember their interaction with a believer. People should remember their time, their conversations that they have with us who believe. Not because we aim for that, you know, we're just trying to be different, you know, trying to be weird, but because we are different. Believers are different from within because of the change that the Lord God has has done within us. He's regenerated us, He's made us new. We see the world differently, we think differently. We don't worry like others do because even when we are worried, we have a faithful living, almighty, trustworthy, faithful God. We don't mourn like those who have no hope. Our speech is different, enough that people in the world should remember when they've seen us. I mean, even if they don't remember everything we say or everything about us, they should remember there was something different about that person. You have Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6 in your notes that teach us to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, learning how to speak to them. You have 2 Corinthians 2, teaching us to not walk a, a, around just quarreling with everybody, but being kind and teaching and patiently enduring evil, correcting our opponents with gentleness. Why would we do any of that? So that? Because God may grant them repentance so that they can believe and they can be saved. So we don't need to try to do or be anything different. This, this is not a motivational talk like, hey, let's figure out ways to be different and go out there and be different. This is. Let's get into the Word of God and let's think like God tells us to think. Let's believe as He tells us to believe. And when we are doing that, we'll be different. And that will make an impact on the people around us. As we live the life that God has for us, we've got to watch out for worldly wisdom and power. We've got to watch out for the world's desire for us to fit in. Now, all of this was what God was doing all around Joseph. That was God's will happening around him. Number two, verses 14 to 36 Let's look now at God's will for Joseph. Here's, here's God's will for Joseph. After Pharaoh heard what the cupbearer said, he says, "Go get him. That's enough for me. <laughs> go find him, go get him, bring him here." Well, to go get him, they had to get him out of the pit. So again, as a reminder, we're tracing Joseph's life from parent to pit, to Potiphar to pit, to Pharaoh. But he can't come before him like this. He's got a beard. He's got inappropriate clothes on, and the Egyptians didn't like beards, and they didn't like inappropriate clothes. They've got, he's got to get dressed. The Egyptians liked that clean-shaven look. The Hebrew ideal was the manly beard. The Egyptians liked the, the clean-shaven. So he's got to get rid of those rags. He's got to get rid of his facial hair. He's got to get rid of the iron collar on his neck and the chains on his feet, and he comes before Pharaoh, and the key is the interaction between Joseph and Pharaoh. I had a dream. No one can interpret it. I've been told you can. Here's Joseph's chance. Here's his chance. He could seize the day, grab this opportunity, and run with it. Yes, I can, Pharaoh. I've got this, and for a price, I'll tell you what your dreams mean. Let me go free, and I'll tell you what they mean. But he blows it. (laughs) He blows his his shot with this response. Nope, I can't. It's not in me. I can't do it. You got the wrong guy. No, I can't do it, but neither can anybody else, but God can. God knows, and God will tell, or he wouldn't have brought me here for this moment. Not gods, not your Egyptian gods that you've been trying to appeal to, that have been coming up short, coming up silent. Joseph knows there is a higher God than all of the false gods of Egypt, the faithful, living, almighty God. Not only that, but he's going to give you a favorable answer, something that's going to lead to your benefit and your blessing. So Joseph, whether he understood that, full, uh, so Pharaoh, whether he understood that or not, said, all right, let me just tell you the dream. And all we need to do is just point out, we're not going to reread it again, but Pharaoh makes just a couple of changes in exaggerating the dreams just a bit. The positive part fairly um, falls in line with the dreams themselves, the seven good cows, the seven ears of grain. But on the negative side, he expands it. He says, rather than, verse 3 says, seven cows that were ugly and thin, Verse 19, Pharaoh says they are poor and very ugly and thin. He says, i never seen nothing like that in the days of Egypt. (laughs) That's what he would have said if we were in, I don't know, Mississippi, Alabama, right? But this this is Egypt, so I've never seen anything like this. He's been telling his dreams over and over again. He's not been getting any answers. His anxiety is going up. You can tell by the way he's describing this dream. Uh, He expands a little bit on the ears as well, but then he relates the point that he got out of the gobbling up of the seven good cows and good ears. When the bad ones gobbled them up, you couldn't even tell that there were good ones there, and it didn't even help the blighted ears or the ugly cows. They stayed that way. It was, just, it was like there was nothing good had ever been there. And then, so at the end, Pharaoh ends, ends his speech to Joseph with a helpless plea. I told this to all the guys who said they can answer it, and they can't. So Joseph begins to explain the two dreams are one They have the same message, but Joseph three times points us to the point that he needs to get across to Pharaoh and that we've got to get across. Verse 25, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. He gives the key to unlocking the whole meaning of the dreams. The seven refers to years, but before he goes on, he points Pharaoh back to the point in verse 28, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years will be abundant, uh, not from your false gods, not your mythology. You're, there's nothing you can do about this. These seven years are going to be great. And then, one more time, verse 32 the thing is fixed by God, God will shortly bring it about. In other words, God is not like your gods, you can't change his mind. In Egyptian mythology and Greek and Roman mythology and in so many gods of the world that have been invented by man, you can change the mind of gods. You can have gods arguing with gods and, and fighting with each other and one winning out and one not. You could argue with them. You could work out a deal. God's not like that. God has determined it, therefore it will happen. That's what Joseph says three different times. God's bigger and better than anything you have here in Egypt. Any of your wisdom, your power, your God's better than you, Pharaoh. (laughs) This is who God is. Now, why is God going to do this? Why is He going to bring seven really good years and then seven really bad famine years? Well, He says that He's going to, and that's why. (laughs) I remember hearing somebody say, you know, God says it. I believe it. That settles it. (laughs) But I think really it's better God says it that settles it. <laughs> whether I believe it or not, really, when God says it, that settles it. Now, every person does have to decide, am I going to believe that? Am I going to believe what God has said or something else? Am I going to reject it? And when we decide, when we make that decision, that leads to the way that you live your life, or the way that you view life, the way that you speak, the way that you live, the way that you react to life, whether you believe that or don't believe that. Well, everybody in the court around them right now, between Pharaoh and Joseph, is probably holding their breath. Like, what's about to happen? Because nobody talks to Pharaoh like this. (laughs) But he's not finished. Joseph says, here's some advice. (laughs) I'm going to give you some advice based on this dream from God. Get a discerning and wise man to set in charge over Egypt. Discerning means understanding, there's some, there's some intelligence, there's some wisdom there. Wise is, is again, the same type of idea, shrewdness and, and wisdom, but with the emphasis is acting on it now. So, it's, it's discerning, it's here's what's right, here's what's wrong, here's what's good, here's what's bad, but now we're going to start doing something about it. Discerning and wise. Find a man like that, put him in charge, give him a staff of overseers, because this is a huge job. It's for the whole nation of Egypt take 20% of all the produce that you're going to have and seven years of plenty. It's going to be more than enough. You're not even going to notice it's gone. Gather up the food in the cities, guard it. That will be your food for the seven terrible famine years. And the payoff is you won't die, right? So that Egypt won't perish. So he presumes to speak to Pharaoh without being spoken to. He presumes to dispense advice when he hasn't been asked. And that's the faith of Joseph standing before Pharaoh. God will do this. He's told you beforehand. You don't have to obey. You can make a decision not to obey. (laughs) But it will cost you everything. So you need to do this. And by the way, it's happening soon. Verse 32 says, he's going to shortly bring it about, so you better decide and act quickly. (laughs) God has spoken. Now act and obey. Joseph does. What will you do, Pharaoh? Now, if everybody was holding their breath before, they've just gasped. (laughs) Because Joseph has just said all of this to Pharaoh. Our application point under this second part is that believers should always give glory to God in everything. Always giving glory to God in everything. Now, we can't give God any more glory than he already has. I don't know if we've realized that. Like, you know, God's not dependent on us to give him glory. But what we mean by that is not trying to take glory from God that's rightly his that's already rightly God's. So here's Paul's example in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, this is is how you should think of us. You know, the the apostles, the capital A apostles, with all of the greatness. He, He says, here's how you should think of us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. And stewards are required to be faithful. That's how he says you should think of us. And so in verses 6 and 7 of 1 Corinthians 4, he says, I write this to you so you won't be puffed up with pride Because what do you have that you did not receive? All that we have, brothers and sisters, all that we enjoy, our very next breath is a gift from God. We've received it from Him. We haven't earned it. We haven't deserved it. He gives it to us in His grace. So I can't boast about how I can breathe any more than I would boast about what I own, what I have, or complain about what I don't have. God's given me what He's given me, and it's all been a blessing. All of the glory goes to Him. That's why later on in 1 Corinthians 10, He says, no matter what we do, whether we eat or drink, whatever we are doing, we we do everything to the glory of God. All of our strengths, all of our successes are a gift from God. All of the difficulties, all of the hard times come from God, but all of the glory goes to Him. So Joseph doesn't engage in any self-promotion, and he doesn't try to twist this into getting something out of it. He tells Pharaoh the meaning for the dreams. God gives them to Joseph. Joseph gives them. He says, I'm here for God's will for his purposes, so I'm going to do what he told me to do. That's the second part. Now to finish out the chapter, verses 37 to 57, we see number three, this is now God's will through Joseph. God's will through Joseph. Pharaoh is now pleased. Everybody else becomes pleased too. Pharaoh's happy, everybody else can, okay, we can breathe again. So Pharaoh says, look, we could search the whole land of Egypt. We couldn't find a wiser, more suitable man for the job than you, so let's not waste any time. Discerning and wise, Pharaoh uses the same words that Joseph does. That's you, Joseph. Besides, Pharaoh adds, in you is the spirit of the gods. I mean, you were just some guy sitting in prison somewhere, forgotten. But now this is is what the gods have said to you and what's happening. So uh, we better trust you, right? That's how Pharaoh sees this. There's something special about you. So the plan comes together in Pharaoh's mind over the course of these few minutes while they're talking. Verse 40, only the throne you will not have control over. I'm your boss, your only boss. You work directly for me. Verse 41, he confirms it. You're in charge of the whole land of Egypt. The promotion is final, and here's the proof for it. Joseph gets Pharaoh's own signet ring. You need a signature from Pharaoh for something? You've got it. Here He gets a blank check, right? That's the equivalent of a blank check for his budget for this job. He gets new clothes, a gold chain for his neck. Finally, did you catch this? For the first time in Joseph's life, his old clothes are being removed, and something better is coming in place. Rather than his coat of many colors being removed and thrown into the pit, and rather than his clothes being removed by Potiphar's wife as he flees temptation and he's thrown back into the pit, he is having his clothes removed and they're being replaced with something better. Nobody wears these things unless they've got power. And this power comes from Pharaoh himself. He even gets a herald to announce his... You know, bow down, here comes Joseph. No one's going to be able to do anything. They can't even... Don't even lift your foot unless Joseph tells you to. <laughs> Don't lift a hand until he says so. And now if he's going to be going all around Egypt, a second only to Pharaoh, they can't move their hands or feet without him. They can't call him by his Hebrew name. He needs an Egyptian name. So he becomes Zaphnath Paneah. Scholars debate what it means. Maybe it was God speaks and lives. Maybe it's, you know, the revealer of secrets. Whatever it was, it doesn't really matter. This is the only time you see this name used. Even later on, when the people come to Pharaoh at the end of the chapter, he doesn't say, go see Zaphenath paneah He says, go talk to Joseph. But he gets this new name as part of this exaltation of Joseph. Finally, uh, Pharaoh assigns Joseph a wife, and she's not just any wife. She is Asenath, whose name means belongs to Neth, the goddess Neth, who was the goddess of the earth, the source of wisdom in the Egyptian mythology. Asenath is the daughter of Potiphera, which is the same as Potiphar. Um, different name, but it means the same thing, given by Ra, the false sun god. Uh, this Potiphar is the priest of the city called Sun City. Not the one in Phoenix, but the, the Heliopolis. Uh, on is what it's called here. So it's a marriage of status, recognition. Joseph, you've made it. With all of that exaltation of Joseph... Many commentators like to call this, you know, his exaltation, his reward. He now has class and money and power and adoration and celebrity and position, distinction. It's the ultimate rags to riches, the lowest of the low to the highest place. It's instant success. But again, I point you to what's just happened. Joseph is now solely responsible for the welfare of the entire nation of Egypt. If nobody can do anything unless Joseph tells them to, if he leads them wrong, it all falls on Joseph. The entire nation of Egypt is dependent on this one man who's only 30 years old and whose only credential or qualification for this is that a couple of years ago he told somebody some dreams and it came true. (laughs) He's a foreigner, a slave who got fired, (laughs) he's a prisoner. And so for at least the next 14 years, he is solely in charge of the welfare of the entire nation of Egypt. This is a heavy burden. He's being given loads of responsibility, and he's seen this happen in his life. God's brought this in his life before uh, as a slave and in prison. Now he's got the responsibility that comes with loads of power and money and prestige. There are two ways that he could go, two extremes that he could go in this. The first is pride. Because how many human beings are good at handling celebrity? Satan couldn't get Joseph to give up his faith in the trials. Maybe he can get Joseph to give up his faith in this success, the good things that are happening. Satan isn't doing any of this. God's doing all of this. But Satan can use what God's doing for temptation in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts. Joseph is not going to change. That's rare. (laughs) It reminds us of that first application we had that, that um, you know, Joseph's not going to fall for the trappings of the power and the wisdom of the world. He's going to keep trusting the Lord. All of that stuff gained Pharaoh nothing. Joseph says, I'm not falling for that. Don't fall for it yourself, brothers and sisters. He could go pride. He could go the other way to protest. You know, There may be a part of Joseph that likes or craves all this attention, but there may be part of him that just says, you know what? No thanks, Pharaoh. <laughs> I, I've done my time here. I, I've laid out the plan Let somebody else do it, right? You've got the plan. You've got the people. Just do it yourself. I want to go home. But he recognizes this is happening to him as part of God's will for his life. So he needs to submit, trusting the Lord. And he takes this job the same way he took his other two jobs here in Egypt, as a servant, as a prisoner. He says, okay, I'm going to do the best I can. He starts journeying across Egypt. He's on the road. He gets this job, and he's on the road for seven years, (laughs) But before the famine comes, God gives him two sons. As Joseph names these two sons, we're going to find out, has he fallen? Is he sliding and slipping into the the wisdom of the world? Or is he walking as a believer in the faithful, living, almighty God? Is he going to walk like an Egyptian? (laughs) Sorry, I know, I know. Or is he going to walk like a believer? His firstborn he names Manasseh. It sounds like making to forget God has made me forget my hardship and my father 's house. Loose translation means no bitterness, no bitterness at home. My brothers hated me, they were jealous of me, they conspired against me, they almost killed me they me, they, they sold me into slavery. While I've been here, it's been hard. I've served as a slave. I was falsely accused. I was thrown into prison. I've taken care of everybody else. I've been let down time after time after time. And even now, I've got this humongous responsibility, and it comes with some perks. But this is still hard. It's, it's hard in different ways, but this is hard. But with this son, this blessing from God, God is making me forget all that stuff from the past. I'm letting it go. No bitterness. Manasseh, his next son is Ephraim, making fruitful. God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. He has two sons now, a double blessing of fruitfulness from God. And he's gone from the lowest to the highest points in Egypt. What could possibly be the explanation for that? Only God. Only God can take my life in directions like this. (laughs) Joseph said, I never thought my life would go like this. And how many of us can identify with that? never saw my life going like this, but God did. He's seen me through all of this in all of this land of opportunity. Is that what he says? In all of this land of blessing where I am? He says, no, in all of this land of my affliction. Joseph being in this land of Egypt is not, has not been, and will not be a land of blessing and opportunity. It has been and is still now a land of affliction. He's not where he wants to be. So when we try to think of this as Joseph's exaltation and his reward for faithfulness, Joseph says, I don't want any of this. I don't want to be here because even when he dies in chapter 50, way at the end of Genesis, in verse 22, he says, I'm about to die. When God says it's time, he's going to come. He's going to visit his people, Israel. He's going to bring you out of the land. When he does, take my bones with you. I don't want to be here. He wants out of Egypt, but he wants what God wants more than what he wants. God wants him here, so he'll stay here. And as he stays within God's will, God's making him fruitful, God's way of fruitful, God's blessed kind of fruitful, Ephraim. He names his son Ephraim. So Joseph hasn't fallen for the trappings of the world, the power, the money, the success. His heart, his mind are focused on the Lord, and it doesn't change during success, which may be harder for us to handle than the, than the poverty, the, the difficult times, the, the struggles. And he works hard, so hard that the amount of food they gather can't even be measured. And they only took 20% of what they gathered in those seven years. That, that's how much they took. And so then when the famine comes, his faith also then isn't shaken in the Lord God. Why not? Because the Lord is faithful. It's not because of all the food we have. It's not because of all the plans that we've made. It's because, well, God's in charge of all of this. He's trusting Him. So the famine comes in all lands, verse 54 says. All the land of Egypt was famine, uh, was famished. Uh, verse 56 says it was severe. Verse 57 says it's not just in Egypt. It's all over all the known land. Uh, the ESV says all the earth. Some versions say all lands are everywhere. The, the Hebrew word can mean the entire planet. Or can just mean all of the lands in a local area. If it literally was the entire planet, God was providing for people in other parts of the world in different ways. But here, it's through Joseph's faithful work. So the people come to Pharaoh. He says, don't look at me, go to Joseph. And Joseph begins selling the food to the people. Egyptians, foreigners, everybody has to buy the food from Pharaoh. And that's going to be important later on in a few weeks. But the result of all this is that the people are fed and cared for. That was God's plan. That was God's will for the people to be cared for. Now, one of the questions I had as I was studying this was, how did they preserve all that food? And we don't have time to go through all of the things that I found, but they, it says here in these verses that they, they stored it in the cities themselves. It was dispersed storage. So, if, if not just one place. Because if something happened to that one storage tank of food, it went bad then all of it's bad and there's no food left, right? Uh, They would guard all of the food in the cities. He's told to keep it. That's the word guard. Um, One of the things that they would do is they would put sand in the grain because the beetles that would come in to eat the stored grain uh, would rub against, the the sand would rub against their shell. It would um, weaken that shell. They would dry up and die instead of infecting all of the grain. Uh, One in particular Like I said, we don't have time to go all the way through this, but this one kind of beetle could lay between 300 and 500 eggs in a month and just destroy an entire storage tank, a granary, within a very short time. But they were able um, to store and to keep and preserve this food. Our lesson here, the, the application, is that believers should always trust and live by God's sovereignty, wisdom, and goodness. Trust and live by his sovereignty, wisdom, and goodness. It shouldn't matter to us whether God calls us to being wrongly imprisoned in jail or to be held under the bondage of riches. <laughs> whether we're tied up with money or tied up with debt, poverty, we trust that God knows what he's doing. What does it look like? It looks like Jesus' parable in Matthew 25. Verses 14 to 30, you remember the parable of, we call it the parable of the talents. God has entrusted five talents to some of us. A talent was 20 years wages for a laborer. If you saved up every penny you made for 20 years, that's one talent. You didn't spend a dime. That's one talent. One servant got five talents. That's 100 years of pay. To others, God has given two talents, two lifetimes of work, To others of us, God has given us 20 years wages, every penny saved up for 20 years. God's given us, He's entrusted to us a lot, a lot of what is valuable, the the faith that we have, the, the resources that we have, the family that we have. Even those of us with little have much, but He expects us to be faithful over what He's given us. He expects us to use what He has given us for His glory so that when we're all finished, we can present it to Him. We can say, here, Lord, here's here's what I've done with what you've given me. And when we don't, we show ourselves to be what Jesus calls in that parable, the wicked, slothful servant. Jesus says that that's the worthless servant who is thrown into outer darkness. But the faithful servants are rewarded with even more, and we get to enter into the joy of his presence, the joy of the presence of our master. So trusting and living By the sovereignty, wisdom, and goodness of God looks like faithfulness over what God's given us. It looks like Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Do it with all your strength. When God's given you a job to do, when He's given us something to work on and to, to handle, we do it with everything we've got, all of our energy for His glory. It looks like what Jesus said in Matthew 6, do not be anxious about your life. Being anxious about life accomplishes Nothing. It shows little faith. So we trust that God knows that we need food and drink and clothing. And we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, that Jesus says. And He'll provide those other things to us. All of these lessons point us back to trusting in this God, this good God. His sovereignty, His wisdom, His goodness. Because He's faithful, He's living, He's real. He's the Almighty God. That's what these lessons from Joseph's life are teaching us. God's trustworthy, so trust Him. God is good. Believe in that. Hold fast to that. Whether things are really good or really bad, God's got it. Father, we thank You for that truth, Lord. We thank You for revealing to us over and over. God, these lessons occur so often. Lord, they pop up and they appear Lord, so many times in your word because, God, it takes us so many times to learn these lessons. God, you've brought each of us in this room through some easy times, through some good times. Lord, you've brought each of us in our own ways through hard times. Lord, some of us have gone through not very difficult times yet. We don't understand. Lord, but some in this room have gone through diagnosis for cancer. Lord, some in this room have gone through the death of a child or a parent. God, many in this room have gone through difficulties with money and difficulties trying to provide for family. Lord, many have struggled with questions and and challenges that have come from within themselves, from within their own family. Lord, from friends, God, from events and circumstances that have happened. God, we don't see what's happening very well. We don't understand why these things happen to us, but God, we know, we trust that you do. God, that you work in all of the situations, all of the circumstances, the the terrible, devastating things that happen. God, the really good, great, wonderful things that happen. Lord, you're in control. You're sovereign. But God, in that sovereignty, you're wise and you're good. Father, I pray that you would teach that to us, remind us of that. Lord, help us to trust God, that we can live the life that you've got for us, that we can live in strength and confidence, Lord, not in fear, not in timidity, Lord, but with power and boldness because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done for us, Lord, because we have hope now and forever. Lord, we pray that you would make that real in the life of each person here that knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't, God, we pray that they would see that need for their sins to be forgiven so that they can have that same faith and hope and confidence and boldness in him. We praise you, we thank you for our Savior Jesus Christ in his name, amen.